Hey there, I'm Eric, although I have sometimes blogged under the name Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today our purview is Sandman numbers five through seven. A little story arc in which Morpheus is going to face off against a guy named Dr. Destiny. Yeah, and these three issues sort of wrap up a story arc that's basically been going since issue number one or two. That's right. To recap briefly, Dream, a.k.a. Morpheus, was captured by sorcerer Roderick Burgess. After 70 years of captivity, he escaped, but his magical tools had been sold off. He previously recovered his pouch of sand from John Constantine and his helmet from hell. Now there's only one left, his ruby. That's right. So we have a cover here by Dave McKeon. Yeah, this is showing us a sort of a pale-skinned, bald figure. He's wrapped up in chains with electronic components covering his brain and heart, connected to wires running out of sight. Yeah, do you think this is supposed to be Mr. Miracle? You know, that makes sense, because we do get the escape sequence from him sort of paralleling the escape sequence from Destiny a little earlier in the issue. Yeah, it doesn't look like Dr. Destiny to me. Yeah, he's, he's pale and bald, but our Dr. Destiny is considerably more idiosyncratic in his appearance than that. Yeah. And so it would make sense as well, the, the chains as sort of a decorative thing recall Mr. Miracle's origin story. Why don't you fill us in on Mr. Miracle's origin story? Because not... we're going to see it in a minute. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I know it. Is that, is that what's <clears throat> going to happen here? That's his yeah, origin story? More or less. All right. Well, I, one other thing I'd like to mention before we jump in to this issue is to just to say that this issue number five is the last issue of Sam Keith art. At least the right. last issue for a while of Sam Keith art. I, I didn't look up whether he ever returns. Yeah, I looked into this a little bit. Apparently Sam Keith had never been a regular on a series before. He wasn't quite prepared for it. In fairness, Gaiman and Dringenberg hadn't either. Okay. But Sam Keith also has said since he left that his art style didn't really fit with where the series was going. Hmm. Well, I, I think it's a shame because he did a hell of a job on these first five issues. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here by saying this, but I think the art in issue number six is kind of ugly. Hmm. But Okay, well, we are starting Sandman number five, Passengers. This is written by Neil Gaiman, art by, as mentioned, Sam Keith, with inks by Malcolm Jones III. Right. So we start on an exterior shot of Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane in Gotham City, and we see that there is one light on. Now this scene is set to Funeral March of a Marionette, which is perhaps better known as the theme song for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which is actually the capacity in which we see it here. It also appeared as the music used by a Pied Piper character to lure children in the movie Sailor Moon Super S Black Dream Bowl. I remember that film. All right. <laughs> I thought I was the only one who remembered that film. You are. I didn't really remember that film. I was fucking with you. Damn it. 
we uh, go to an interior, a close-up shot, in fact, of what appears to be a dead guard here at the Arkham Asylum. With a bony hand holding a pistol over him. And inside a security room, we see that the, the sound that we've been hearing of the introduction to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show is actually coming from the interior of the security room. Right, those two guards are watching the show. They don't look troubled in the least. Yeah, we can sort of see Dr. Destiny slink by unnoticed, his silhouette in the door here. And then the bony hand begins to push open the door labeled Dining Hall. Yeah, and as he is sneaking his way into the dining hall, somebody is sneaking up on him. Although, I'm not entirely sure how, since this person is also hanging from the ceiling. He just sort of sensed that this person was behind him, and he turns around to see... Dr. Jonathan Crane, the Scarecrow. Crossover! <laughs> well, it is Arkham Asylum. Yeah, this is a pretty crossover-heavy issue as well. Yeah. So, Crane asks Dr. Destiny, or John D., not to spoil his joke. To celebrate April Fool's Day, he has faked his own suicide, and D. finds him hanging from a noose outside the dining hall. Right. If you look so, closely on the next page, you can see that he's got sort of a hook on the back of his shirt where he's actually hanging so that he's not actually choked. Yeah, and just as an effect to help remind us that we know this character, we see the masked face of the Scarecrow, you know, Jonathan Crane in his supervillain outfit, hovering behind Jonathan Crane as we see him here. Right. And I think that's a very effective way of doing it. Yeah, it would be a little bit of a continuity lockout if they just had Dr. Crane and didn't give us any kind of hint. Right. So, Dee tells Dr. Crane that he's going to get his ruby, which he calls the Materiopticon. And he's going to drive the whole world mad and then become king. Right, but Scarecrow kind of insists that he'll be back. Right. Have a nice time, and you must promise, when you get back, to tell me all about it. Destiny says he's not coming back. Crane replies, but we always come back here. It's so scary outside. If you see the Joker, tell him to hurry back. It isn't April Fool's Day without his little jokes. Yeah, and he says, but I'm doing my best. I left another next door. And that's where we see that he also has killed a guard. Right, he's left somebody actually hanged in the next room. A dead guard with a kidney sign on his back. So, this issue is not painting the security at Arkham Asylum in a very positive light. No, and actually I want to bring something up here. In the last issue, we saw that Dr. Destiny had been delivered his mother's amulet of protection. Yes, the amulet of protection given by Beelzebub in exchange for the helm in issue number one, and subsequently stolen from Rutherford... Ru uh, Ruth Van Sykes. Ruth Van Sykes, not Rutherford anything. Stolen from Ruth Van Sykes by the woman who would turn out to be Dr. Destiny's mother. Right. Coming into this issue, I was looking for the way that the Amulet of Protection helps Dr. Destiny in any meaningful way. And I thought maybe, you know, it prevented guards from noticing him as he escaped from Arkham. It really doesn't have any bearing on this story, except that having received it is how he knows his mother is dead and why he decides to go get her ruby. Right. So Dr. Destiny climbs out a window and over a barbed wire fence. I guess maybe the amulet helps with that part. Perhaps. And he finds himself spotlighted in the headlights of a car. 
this is a uh, year after the Killing Joke had come out, and I wondered if him being spotlighted like that in the headlights is a deliberate visual reference to that comic. Yeah, it could be. I, it seemed to me like something he was doing intentionally. Like, he steps in front of the car, brandishes the gun as a way of hijacking the car. Right. So Dr. Destiny climbs into the car, and he orders the blonde woman inside to drive him to his ruby. Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> right. And then we come to the next page. This is a complete change of scene here. Yeah, we are seeing Mr. Miracle, and he is trapped in some kind of maze, which keeps leading him inevitably to the fearsome visage of Granny Goodness. Yeah, this is the planet Apocalypse. That's where Darkseid is from. Right. And Granny Goodness is one of Darkseid's top retainers. Tench folks. Right, and she is apparently sort of in charge of maintaining and, and torturing captives, as we see here. So there's this little boy. You mentioned it was Mr. Miracle, and it is. But this is Mr. Miracle as something like a six-year-old boy. Right. So he finds Granny Goodness and gets locked up in the murder machine, which is my best guess for what we're seeing on the cover. Right, that makes sense. She wraps him up in chains and concrete, puts him in the murder machine. He's bound up in these dozens of chains, and his feet are in concrete, and dozens of laser blasters are pointed at him. It seems pretty extreme, but he's apparently good enough at escaping that he needs this, because he manages to escape again. Yep, busts out of the coffin, sidesteps some knives, leaps through some flames, avoids an acid pit... He eventually finds his way to a place where a number of apparently inadequately loyal servants are hung up, impaled on spikes, and he finds that one of them is his first love, Orly. That's life under Darkseid's rule. Right. I called him Darkseid a minute ago, and now I've called him Darkseid. I don't know the man's name, is basically the, what we're coming to. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> well, Grant Morrison in Final Crisis used it, used the name Darkseid and the phrase Darkseid almost interchangeably. He used them to suggest each other, so... He at least felt it was side. I notice here that Orly is hung up with her feet burned off. This is kind of gruesome, but I wondered if it was becoming popular already in comics art to avoid showing people's feet, and if this was kind of a winking reference at that. Yeah, I thought she had just been Liefelded. I didn't realize that she was actually, like, missing her feet from the, from the thighs down. In any case, Mr. Miracle, this is his last test before he can completely escape from Granny Goodness. He needs to be able to remember his name, and unfortunately he can't. If he can type his own name, he'll be scot-free, but he can't remember it. Yeah, that's a pun on the fact that scot-free is generally considered to be Mr. Miracle's name, but not his true name. Right. So, a little bit about Mr. Miracle. His name is Godfrey. If I'm not mistaken, he is from New Genesis. And Highfather, the ruler of New Genesis, had made a deal with Darkseid that they were going to trade sons as sort of a hostage exchange. Right. Darkseid's son is Orion, who was raised on New Genesis and became a good guy. Yeah, and Mr. Miracle was raised on Apocalypse and became a good guy, too. Yeah, Darkseid so, lost in that deal, but he so, treated him like shit, so really... 
I guess Darkseid's not as good at raising people as the High Father. Well, certainly not as good at engendering loyalty. Look at the way he treats the people. <laughs> you know, I think his most loyal son is the one who never knew him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm referring to Calabac, the 90s Green Lantern villain. So why did Calabac not know Darkseid? Oh, I think he was just a bastard child left behind. Oh, okay. You know, okay. Darkseid had sex with some alien lady and ran off. I see. Hang on. Uh, I'm sorry. I think that guy's name is Graven. Calabac is someone else. Calabac is a son of Darkseid. I don't know which one is Calabac and which one is Graven. Huh. This might be one for the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I think Calabac is his first son. I think Calabac fought Superman a number of times in the 90s animated show. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of Graven. Okay. Graven is the one that's a bastard child and is fiercely loyal to Darkseid. So Scott Free finds himself hurtling toward a row of raised, sharpened, metallic implements, and he is caught by Morpheus. It's over, child. You can wake up now. He wakes up in his own bed. He escaped Apocalypse years ago and is now a member of the Justice League. And Morpheus is in his room asking about the ruby. It's also worth noting that he is now an adult man and no longer bald. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dr. Destiny and the blonde woman are driving along in awkward silence. Well, and even more awkward conversation. She boldly threatens him, claiming her mob hitman husband will avenge her if she's hurt. But when Dee points the gun at her, she's suddenly quiet, terrified. Look at his face while he's pointing that gun at her. That's a guy on the edge right there. Yeah, he's desperate. But he apologizes for scaring her and mentions that he's escaping from the madhouse. She asks why he's naked. He says they took his clothes for fear he'd use them to hang himself. So she offers him her husband's coat from the back of the car. Yeah, and it's at this point that we get the title of this particular story. This is very late in the issue to get a title page. We're actually on about page 10 here. True. So meanwhile, back at the Justice League International Embassy, where Mr. Miracle has been living, he is briefing Morpheus on the current state of the ruby. He finds that the JLA took it from Dr. Destiny and kept it in the Watchtower Satellite's trophy room, but the Watchtower has been destroyed since. And Mr. Miracle sadly cannot provide the current location. But he has an idea who they can ask, and here he has a good line. Let me see, Batman? No, it's 3.30 a.m., he'll be at work. <laughs> yeah, and then he thinks of who he wants to ask and says, let's go wake him up, but we don't get to find out just yet who that is. We're back in the car, where Dr. Destiny asks the woman's name. It's Rosemary. That's for remembering, he says. And he explains that he used to call himself Dr. Destiny. He was a real doctor, not a medical one, a scientist one. But now he's John D. He has a lot of names. Dr. Destiny, John D. His mother called him Johnny Boy or Dream Boy. Rosemary offers him a sandwich from her lunchbox, but he doesn't get hungry anymore. She's a nurse, she says, and she asks if he's got the big A, AIDS. He doesn't know what that means because he's been in Arkham for the last five years. <laughs> That's right. She asks him if he has AIDS and he says, helpers? Right. <laughs> she asks him what he did to get put in Arkham, and for one panel he's drawn... Not just desiccated, but as an actual skull. As he says, I did foolish things. Things to gravity. To identity. I traded their faces with their enemies. I pretended I was one of their number. She asks who they are. The Justice League. So, this reminded me of 
a similar incident is kind of talked about in Identity Crisis. Okay. Where the heroes were all body swapped and the villains, like, you know, took all the masks off and took pictures and stuff. But in Identity Crisis, it was the wizard who was behind it. And Dr. Destiny is not actually in that story. So, anyway, I found this bit confusing. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's talking about his crimes in very vague terms. The incident that he's talking about, I think we mentioned in a previous episode, is JLA Annual Number 1. And it's not really canon anymore, because this is actually Dr. Destiny's, or I should say, his first appearance in this series was his first appearance post-Crisis. I see. So there was a, there was a reboot. And here he's making clear that some version of that story happened, but because that was pre-Crisis and this is post-Crisis, we can't count on it to be exactly the way that we read it in that issue. Yeah, it's the broad strokes. Meanwhile, Scott and Morpheus knock on the door of... The Martian Manhunter. Yeah, and this is really cool because when Martian Manhunter sees Morpheus, just like in the issue where he went to hell and one yeah. of his old followers perceived Morpheus as someone else or as a, having a different appearance than the way we see him, Martian Manhunter perceives Morpheus as Lord Ozoral. Yeah, he's a giant flaming Martian skull. And even Morpheus is surprised to see a living Martian. Right, he thought they had all died. And then we find out that not only does Morpheus have a special Martian name, so does the ruby. Right, it's called Dorilar, the Stone of Binding, and he asks John Jones where he can find it. Yeah, and John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, says that it's a warehouse in upstate Gotham. I Gotham is a too. state? <laughs> Gotham is apparently a state. So it's in a little town called Mayhew. Wait, so if Gotham is a state, and Gotham is across the bay from Metropolis, does that mean that Metropolis is in Gotham? Well, maybe the bay is the state line. Yeah, I guess that Between could be Between Gotham true. and Kansas? I'm not really sure where Metropolis is. It's three hours drive from Smallville, but has a port. Yeah, that's right. I think that at least some people think that it's in Kansas. Because there is, like, a Metropolis, Kansas, isn't there? I don't know about the real city, but I know that in the... Smallville show was absolutely in Kansas, okay. for all the sense that that makes. Uh, right. Guys, let's just get one thing really straight here. I, I'm not sure how much geography you listeners know, but Kansas cannot have a seaport. <laughs> <laughs> it had mountains in almost every episode. <laughs> it is landlocked. So, so Jean tells Morpheus that the ruby is in a warehouse in the little town of Mayhew in upstate Gotham, and Morpheus doesn't need a, an exact address. He's just able to, to go there, and as thanks, he gives Jean a dream of the city of focative mirrors. Yes. So Mr. Miracle and Martian Manhunter, with their two alliterative M names, are now left alone together, and Martian Manhunter offers him a sleeve of Oreos. Come, Scott Free, let us hit the kitchen. I have a secret stash of Oreos of which you are welcome to partake. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in this series. Okay, so now we're back in the car. This miserable car ride, and Dr. Destiny is telling Rosemary about the ruby. There's a little exchange here where he says that his mother wouldn't let him do crime under the family name, hence Dr. Destiny. She says that she wouldn't allow her children to do crime under her family name either. 
Yeah, that's a pretty good one. But you note that she works in the names of her children in here. Perhaps as a tactic of garnering sympathy. Yeah, she's doing her best to humanize herself to Dr. Destiny. And she seems to be doing a pretty good job. He actually does seem to take a liking to her. Right. Now that his mother is dead, he can be John D. again. And he delivers the line which is actually used as the epigram for this volume in the front of the trade. D is for lots of things. Death, dust, darkness, demons. Incidentally, D is for dream, death, destiny, every member of the Endless. Are there only three? There are seven. Oh. Well, I can't, can't wait to find out more about that. But anyway, we see that the car is now five miles away from Mayhew, which is the city in upstate Gotham where the ruby is located. Yeah, and D explains a little bit of what he did to the ruby, too. He used science to do it. He swears he's not a black magician, although other scientists called him one. And he used to have a dream machine, but it was taken away from him, so he had to use the ruby directly. He built circuitry into it, cut it off from its original power source, he points out. And he says, people think dreams aren't real because they aren't made of matter. Dreams are real, but they're made of viewpoints, images, memories, and puns and lost hopes. The ruby, he explains, turns them into matter. Puns, huh? Puns, yeah. So on the next page, we see Morpheus taking advantage of an ability that we've never actually seen before. We've seen him take objects from other people's dreams, but here we see him actually riding people's dreams to get to Mayhew. Yeah, this is a pretty bad shit layout, as the panels are segmented across the page like an orange, with near the center the face of the dreamer in each panel. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, like I said, it's just a shame, because we don't have very many of these really Sam Keithy montage kind of pages left. Yeah, so he's riding a dragon, a bus, a tall ship in various people's dreams to get to Mayhew. Incidentally, he mentions on the bus that he ignores the dreamer and spends his time chatting with the bus driver. The bus driver is a working-class jack-o'-lantern. This is the first appearance of a character named Mervyn Pumpkinhead. Did you get the reference about the, the dreamer copulating desperately in the back of the bus? I noticed that. But you didn't know who it's supposed to be? No, no one's special. Oh, okay. But Mervyn Pumpkinhead is going to go on to be a, a thing? Yeah. Somebody who dreams about having sex in the bus. I don't know. Well, it's not his dream, right? The dreamer is having sex in the back of the bus. Somebody right. is dreaming of Merv Pumpkinhead. Yeah, so so Merv is a a dream who's working a day here. Ah, I see. So he doesn't exist in the waking world? Right. He's a character from the dreaming, as we're going to find out soon enough. So Morpheus ends his journey by climbing out of the head of the Night Watchman at Mayhew Storage as he sleeps on the job. Yeah, and he slips into the storage facility, which has become the uh, Justice League International Trophy Room. Yeah, this is a cool panel, too, just full of all the weird shit that the Justice League has collected. Androids and statues and some kind of giant ball statue and something with tentacles. Yeah, and a couple of giant keyholes. This actually reminded me, there's a similar part in the, in the story arc, The Button, the Flash and Batman crossover. Oh, yeah. Where they go to the Justice League's trophy room or storage room in order to find the, uh, is it called the Cosmic Treadmill? 
The Flash is time yes, machine. Yes, the Flash is time-traveling treadmill. Right. That's cool. So Morpheus finds the ruby inside a crate as it shines. I don't know if it's deliberately beckoning to him, but he can see the light through the crate, and he just punches through and grabs it. And it sort of rejects him somehow. Yeah, that's right. Whatever John D. has done to it, trying to use the ruby causes Morpheus what looks like immense pain, and he is knocked out. He crumples on the floor and is helpless as John D. pulls up outside along with Rosemary. Rosemary wishes him well and tells him he can keep the coat. Right, and then he asks if her husband is really a mafia hitman. She says no, it's just a story she told to scare him. And he says, oh, well, I don't suppose it would have made any difference either way. And then he shoots her. Damn. Yeah, I, that's unfortunate. And, you know, he, he almost has moments of being sympathetic in this issue, unlike in the next issue. Right. But he, he really kind of spoils it by, by shooting poor Rosemary, despite the fact that, the fact that they had seemed to get along. Yeah, that's a very clear statement that John D. is a real sumbitch. Yeah, or just, like, too far divorced from reality to have a proper association between his actions and their consequences. Right. It's true, he specifically asks, essentially, will the act of killing her have any consequence, and he doesn't care about the answer. Right. So he goes into the storage room here, and he finds the ruby... And he mentions that it's now charged up, as if it's been with someone else. Right, it's even more powerful now. And he orders the ruby to touch the world, poisoning people's dreams and bringing their nightmares into the daylight. He ignores Morpheus, stepping over him. He does mention that the ruby has been with a naughty man, but he's not interested in Morpheus at all. Yep, and we close here on his making his way to the 24-hour diner. He asks for a cup of coffee while he waits. And the waitress asks, what are you waiting for? Oh, you know, the usual. The end of the world. So that's that issue. Yeah, I quite liked that one. You know, we have an interesting conversation between John D. and Rosemary, which suffers in rereading when you know that Rosemary's going to die. But right. But while it has that tension, it's pretty entertaining. Right, and it's a good way to get some exposition out of the way, because there is a lot to explain about who John D. was, in a way that the conversation has some interesting tension. Yeah, there are a lot of other cool sequences with really good art in them. We get a really cool drawing of the Scarecrow. We have the sequence where Mr. Miracle is dreaming of trying to escape Apocalypse. The whole apocalypse sequence is very cool, and it is drawn in a sufficiently distinctive style, sort of an old four-color style, really very different from the house style, the EC Comics kind of style that we're getting in the main story. And it makes for a nice moment when he wakes up and the art style shifts abruptly back. Yeah. But I was much more gritty and realistic inside of his bedroom compared to the inside of his memory. (laughs) Right. But I was going to say, the sequence of Morpheus riding dreams to get to Mayhew is also very well drawn, as is the the two pages where Morpheus is trying to use the ruby and it sort of backlashes on him. Yeah. So, yeah, great issue. That one's a lot of fun. And Sam Keith, you will be missed from this title. And that leads us to Sandman number six, 24 Hours. 
written by Neil Gaiman, art by Mike Dringenberg, and inks by Malcolm Jones III. Yeah, so this was sort of my least favorite issue of the series so far. This is, in my opinion, the single most disturbing issue of The Sandman. It is, in fact, the only one that I had never reread before I did the research for this podcast. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure it's going to be worth ours or the listeners' time to recap every single page of it. It goes through, hour by hour, the 24 hours that Dr. Destiny spends with the patrons of this all-night diner that he walked into at the end of last issue, and the various ways that he terrorizes them. Right. So he basically goes into this diner so that he can have a place to watch TV, to watch the news, to see the things that the Ruby is doing around the world. And while he's got them here, he traps seven people in the diner, makes them unable to leave by essentially wishing that they can't remember to leave. Sort of like that Buffy episode. Right, yeah. Older and far away? Yeah, that's the one. So, yeah, he has unleashed a madness on the world, which is somewhat the same as and somewhat distinct from the sleepy sickness, as we saw it in the the first issue. And as he's keeping track of the news and and how that whole thing goes down, he's also terrorizing these seven hostages. Right. And I don't necessarily want to recap it hour by hour, but there are some important things for the ongoing story and for thematic stuff, so let's talk about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I still took notes on it and everything, like a, like a normal issue. <laughs> so we're at the all-night diner. Waitress Betty Monroe writes stories on her days off. She writes stories in which her husband and son who left her come back. She writes stories about her customers, and they don't know she doesn't. She writes them in longhand on yellow legal pads. Yeah. She delivers a tuna on rye and a coffee to a young woman named Judy, who wears a leather jacket adorned in buttons with punk slogans. Yeah, she's got a, a button that says Rude Girl, and she also has a patch on the jacket that says Joy Division. Right! They're a popular group. Yeah, that sounds like a popular song. <laughs> Betty fantasizes about sending her stories in and having them published, and then her secret will be that she's really a waitress, where she gets her inspiration, her models for her stories. Now, it seems like Judy's a lesbian. Oh, definitely. She Uh, asks Betty for a favor that if a girl named Donna shows up, to tell her to wait. Yeah, and Betty knows all about Judy and Donna, and she sort of doesn't judge while actually judging. Right. She thinks that what those girls do is a sin against God and unnatural, quote, but she doesn't mind mining them for material. In her stories, she's already married them both off to young men. That sounds pretty judgy, but... Oh, absolutely. At least she thinks they still deserve a happy ending. Right, and she gives everybody happy endings of her manufacture, whether that's what they would want or not. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We meet some of the other patrons, and we find out that Betty has written about all of them, and given all of them her own particular kind of smarmy rant of happy ending. There's a young man named Mark in the diner, and an older guy and his wife walk in. They are Gary and Kate Fletcher. To Betty, they seem deeply and obviously in love. They're a pretty sharp contrast, though. Gary orders a cheeseburger and coffee, and Kate orders a salad with locale dressing and a sanka. (laughs) That's decaf coffee, right? Right. She thinks the trick to happy endings is to stop. All stories end in death if you keep going. 
And then another character joins the scene, an old man named Marsh. His wife was an alcoholic who died in a sanitarium. He went a little crazy, stole from the mail, and did five years in prison. Now he's a trucker, but he stops in here regularly. Yeah, and there's something going on between him and Betty? Yeah, I think that they have been having an affair, and that's something that's going to come up a little bit later. We learned that they were having an affair when he was married, and it definitely contributed to the collapse of his marriage and his wife's alcoholism and death. Incidentally, Betty recalls Marsh, quote, stealing from the males. That's sort of an out-of-place Britishism. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. Well, another person who happens to be in this diner right now is John D., a.k.a. Dr. Destiny, and Betty thinks how she can't wait to learn more about him so that she can write about him. Yeah, she doesn't react to his shocking appearance. Perhaps the ruby on his chest is hiding his true face in some way. Yeah, or maybe it's some kind of mystical protection because of the bailet. <laughs> you keep bringing up the bailet. <laughs> That's what I think of it as. I suppose as long as people are going to walk around with big red jewels that manipulate fate, it seems only fair to mention the bailet. <laughs> yeah. Destiny's... The eyeball amulet, I mean. The one... Oh, his amulet of protection. Yeah, he has that here. I didn't notice that before. Right, yeah. I'm saying maybe rather than being an effect of the ruby, it's an effect of the eyeball amulet giving him protection. Although, right. that's a pretty... You know, in issue number one, the protection offered by the eyeball seems to just be that you can't blow somebody up with a spell from halfway across the world. Yeah, he does have the ability to manipulate them with the ruby here. To quite a degree. In just a second, Mark tries to get up and leave, and Dee just makes him forget that he has some place to be and stay in the diner. So maybe he's just manipulating them that way. Yeah, I guess that makes more sense than thinking it's the eyeball. But something protected him from that barbed wire fence on the way out of Arkham last issue. Yeah, it's pretty hard to climb those naked. Yeah, you would, you would think that that would be quite hazardous to your health. Dee looks a lot scarier than the last time we saw him. He's still basically just a bony dude, but now he's got, like, a skull-like visage cast mostly in shadow. Yeah, and wild, crazy hair going everywhere. And part of the reason is just that we have a different artist this issue. Yeah, I think so. And as I said earlier, I think the art is just kind of uglier all the way around. In some ways, I think it's more realistic, but also more experimental. Look at some of the abstract shapes that characters' faces and appearances take on, especially later in this story. Yeah, and also the fact that there's, like, a dotted line coming from the guy's eyes to his watch as he looks at his watch. Right. That sort of thing. More experimental. Yeah, so now that we've met all the characters, time starts passing. In the third hour, D asks Betty to turn on the TV, and the trashy daytime talk show is juxtaposed against Judy on the phone with someone called Rose about why Donna hasn't shown up. She and Donna had a fight, and they might be splitting up. Judy calls Donna's mom in tears, but she just hangs up. Yeah. And it seems like whatever Dr. Destiny has done to the world, the sleepy sickness or the, the madness that he's unleashed, it's making this children's puppet TV show that is on the television go pretty dark and insane. Yeah, this cheesy kids' TV host tells the kids that his puppet is telling them to slash their wrists. And then the network goes to technical difficulties. This is sort of our first hint that the Materiopticon is having an effect on the world outside the diner as well. So, starting in the next page, in Hour 7, Dr. Destiny makes everybody have dreams 
where they are deeply happy. But they're all deeply happy because their darkest desires have come to pass. Yeah, Mark has become the boss. He's filthy, rich, and successful. Gary is having sex with a hooker in his car and planning later to beat her up. And you remember how Betty thought that Gary and Kate were totally happy? Well, Kate's fondest wish, I guess, is to have her husband's head on a plate. Right. That way he'll be all hers and she won't have to worry about his infidelity anymore. Right. Then Dee sort of puts them into ordinary mode and samples the small pleasures of his captives' lives, makes Betty a best-selling author and Judy reunite with Donna. He puts them into conflict. He makes Marsh beat up Judy in a homophobic rage while Betty tries to hold him back. This is incidentally one of those two-page spreads that we complained about in the Hellblazer. It continues all the way across the page before going back to the left. Yeah, even though there is a panel break <laughs> at the midline of the top line. Right. And then Dee makes them all worship him. Mark cuts off a finger and uses his blood to write God on Dee's chest. In hour 11, he watches the news. There's nightmares and sleeplessness worldwide, causing terrible accidents, plane crashes, botched surgeries. Fundamentalists think that it's Armageddon. I want to note here, we see havoc wreaked on the world. It's not for the last time, and we're reminded that Morpheus isn't a hero. He's going to try to fix things. I mean, he sets things right in the next issue. Spoiler warning. <laughs> but in case you couldn't have predicted that. He does it because he knows his duty is to keep the world of dreams in its place. He's not compelled by compassion to do anything for humans that are affected by these problems. And while he puts a stop to Dee's tampering, he doesn't repair any of the damage that was suffered. He doesn't really care about people, only about his role as the king of dreams. He's sort of a force of nature. Yeah, he believes, understandably, that he's far above all of this. Even though it's his power that unleashed Dee on the world. So, in hour 12, I guess he's making them tell deep, dark secrets, and somebody had sex with a dead guy? You know, when Kate was 18 and drunk, she snuck into a mortuary and had sex with a corpse. This is silly and unnecessary, and I'm not sure how many times I've actually seen this trope, but I feel like it's been too many already. Admittedly, this is 1988. <laughs> Which trope do you mean exactly? Specifically, people sneaking into mortuaries and having sex with the corpses. Well, that hasn't happened in any other comic we're covering. No, it hasn't. Okay. Actually, what it reminded me of was Clerks. Okay. Isn't there a part in Clerks where someone has sex with a dead guy? Yes. That's a thing that happens, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Towards the end of the movie, Caitlin goes into the bathroom where the old man had died while looking at porn earlier, and nobody realized that he had never come out of the bathroom, and she thinks it's Dante and has sex with him. Spoilers for the movie Clerks, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't remember it that clearly because I've only seen it once. Everybody, I'm on the record. Clerks is worth watching exactly once. Wow. That's his best film. I know. <laughs> so in the next hour, he makes them all have sex. Not with him. He just sits and watches. Mutters, neat. <laughs> He's not interested in sex, just control and degradation. I hate him. Yeah, he's really an awful guy in this issue. Way worse than he seemed to be in the last issue. <laughs> I guess he's also pretty terrible in Destiny's Hand, which, you know, is the other thing I know him from. So I shouldn't be surprised that he's pretty terrible here. I mean, I kind of think of him as 
exceptionally bad among Justice League villains. Of course, Justice League generally deals with big picture guys. Someone who wants to take over the world isn't necessarily injurious to people in the kind of personal ways that Dr. Destiny usually is. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The other thing I wanted to point out here on page 15 before we moved on is that there's a sort of backdrop between the panels of this weird scrawled writing. This kind of insane... Did you notice this? I had not noticed that. I'm not sure what that is. The noise of people's thoughts and dreams in Destiny's head? Yeah, maybe, or maybe he's been scribbling stuff down on paper, and it's some kind of manifesto he's writing. Right. I'm not sure, but we, I, I certainly found it striking. We did see Judy writing a heartfelt letter to Donna earlier, but this is clearly not that. So on the next page, Dr. Destiny is making the female patrons, well, two of the female patrons and the waitress, Betty, tell him his fortune. Right. This is sort of a subtle second appearance for the Hecate, the three-in-one. Judy represents the maiden, Kate the matron, and Betty the crone. Yeah, that's a good point. They did remind me of the Hecate, although I can't say I was as confident as you are that it was intentional. I think so, and I think we're going to see both the actual Hecate and mirror images of the Hecate quite a bit as we go forward. They give him two prophecies. One, that he's going back to Arkham. He gets mad, so they tell him instead that he will fight and kill the Dream King and get all the power of dreams. And both of those things sort of happen in their way. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I said I didn't want to cover every single page, but mm -hmm. I don't understand what's happening in the bottom half of page 17. So he briefly gives them back their minds so that they can be horrified at what they've been doing the last seven hours. And then the next one is Party Games, Murder in the Dark. The entire diner is dark and we hear a scream. I'm not really sure what's supposed to have happened there. If somebody was dead in the next segment, then it would make sense that he had one of them wandering around with a knife, killing anyone they caught, but they're all alive in the next segment. Yeah, so it's really confusing. Yeah. And this is the part where I just stopped taking notes <laughs> and wrote, this is a boring issue and the art is kind of crap. So the next hour, he makes them confess again. This time... Marsh is confessing, and Betty is hammering a nail into his hand for every terrible thing he's done. He confesses that his wife drank because she knew he was having an affair with Betty, that he secretly hated his wife, that he bought her a case of vodka and went out of town, and that's what killed her. And he says that he saw Betty's son in prison in Gotham, that he was a male prostitute, and that Marsh took advantage of him. Yeah, isn't that convenient? That, well, that, that Dr. Destiny decides to make somebody confess all the worst stuff they've done, and it, it turns out that he's a guy who's fucked someone there's son. Right, he's, he's actually done something awful to someone in the room. Yeah, it is a little, and it reminds me of the, you know, the, the mortuary bit a minute ago. It's kind of strange that he makes them confess and they actually have something horrible to confess. Right, yeah, I, I think that in, in the real world, <laughs> if you sat the average person down and make them confess to the worst thing they've ever done, it'd probably be something like, oh yeah, I really hurt the feelings of someone you've never met and don't give a shit about. <laughs> right. 
so then we get another basically montage of tortures. He turns them all into animals. Marsh tries to chew his nail to the table arm off. This the art on this page is exceptionally terrible. Well, this is kind of what I meant by experimental. Is we get this panel of Gary's head turned into this giant square with his mouth taking up ninety percent of it. Yeah, that's it's just weird. And Gary and and Mark have a fight for dominance in which Gary tears Mark's throat out and kills him. And then he makes all the women sing and dance. And then he makes Judy nail her eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> As he gets less creative, he gets more and more disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. There's an hour here where he spends telling fairy tales to the group for some reason. By hour 22, it's dark in the diner. Everybody is dead. Mark's got his head lying next to him on the ground. Kate is atop Gary, seemingly having killed him. And in hour 23, he catches and eats a fly and fiddles with his ruby. He's not even watching the news anymore to see how the madness progresses across the world. Right. Catching the fly is an obvious bit of symbolism. They all wandered into his web and he caught and ate them. Yeah. In hour 24, Morpheus walks into the diner. Dee's glad he was beginning to get bored. I don't know about him, but if I've been bored for two hours, I don't consider that just beginning. <laughs> also, if I've been bored for two hours, I'd probably leave the diner. <laughs> yeah, honestly, what's keeping him there? I don't know. Maybe he wants to be in one place so the Dream King can find him. Yeah, he wants to be found, but there's no particular reason for Morpheus to look for him there. It must just be that Morpheus can follow the ruby, so... He yeah. doesn't have to stay in one place. Yeah, and Morpheus can travel virtually instantly, although with no dreamers left alive in the room, he maybe can't teleport in? He definitely used the door in this scene. Yeah, so that's weird. He says, like he said, I started to get a bit boring, but you don't look strong enough to even make it get interesting, do you? And yeah, so fight next time. And on this last panel of this issue, Morpheus kind of looks like Michael Myers. Oh, yeah. He's usually designed to look like Robert Smith, unless he's wearing Neil Gaiman's clothes. Yeah, he looks kind of like Neil Gaiman. <laughs> so, I want to talk about this issue a little bit. You didn't like it. I certainly can't say that I enjoy reading it. But you don't think it was badly done, per se? Well, I'm not sure I would say that either. John Dee inflicts horrible dehumanizing tortures on seven random people for 24 hours. Kills them all. Essentially gets no reprisal. He's gonna fight Morpheus in the next issue, but he yeah. doesn't even die. He... Yeah, and he's even kind of vaguely forgiven by Morpheus in the next issue. Right, and he ends up right where we picked him up, essentially. This is, I mean, this arc is not a story of evil being punished, but even if it were, this issue is just the part of the story where evil does evil. There's no cause, there's no consequence. Yeah, I agree. It could have used some more tension, like if we were seeing Morpheus emerging. See, even if you keep the tragic ending of, like, everybody in the diner dies, right? if at least you had some tension, is it like Morpheus is, like, on his way or something, and maybe he'll interrupt in time to right. save them, even if he doesn't, <laughs> at least presenting it as a possibility would have kind of helped the issue feel less... Boring. Right, mm -hmm. but they're, they're all doomed as soon as Dr. Destiny traps them in the diner. They even point that out themselves in one scene. Right. And nothing changes that over the course of the issue. 
Yeah, you could have also shown us other superheroes reacting to this crisis. Yeah, I think maybe they want to be a little lower key with crossover than that, even though we are dealing with a Batman villain literally right now. Yeah, and I mean, the Martian Manhunter was in the previous issue. Yeah, but it's not exactly a... <laughs> it's not exactly a Inferno or Kree Scroll War kind of crossover. Sure. And I think Gaiman likes to have the big scope consequences in the background mm -hmm. to, to tell tied-up stories like this while just kind of hinting that there are much bigger consequences to them so that he doesn't lose track of the mains and so that he focuses on a more personal version of the horror that's happening. Sure. I... You know, I, I like I said, I think that there are ways that you can do it, even if you have all the hostages die, there are ways that you can do it that it seems like less of a shitty story. Okay. And, you know, another part of the problem is that Dr. Destiny's tortures for these people are so disgusting. Right. And so, like, so dehumanizing and sexualized most of the time. Mm. You know, it's just, like, it's just creepy to read. Yeah, it is. It is, and... It, it contributes to that also that they genuinely have horrific secrets to tell. Kate wants to chop her husband's head off and had sex with a corpse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are, when, when Dr. Destiny sets out to find darkness in these people, he is able to find it. Right, yeah. So I know that this story is about the concept of muse abuse. Gaiman has said that explicitly, in fact. It's about writers and how they're forced to partially view their lives with detachment to see and use everything as a potential inspiration, no matter how genuinely awful for them and those they love. How they put life in their work by never fully letting go of thinking like a writer, cataloging their experiences. Dee and Betty both see the people in the diner as nothing but raw material to put through their paces. Hmm. Okay. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and maybe there's some kind of parallel being drawn here between Betty putting them to happy endings that she wants, not that they want, and D again, using them for his own purpose without regard to them, to their agency or to what they want. It's right. still a deeply unpleasant issue. Yeah, and like I said, it's, it's, not, it's not that it's terribly far off mm -hmm. from being an okay issue. I'm okay with dark. I would mm -hmm. not be doing a podcast about Vertigo comic books if I wasn't. Right. I am not okay with hopeless to the point of boring. Right, right. And in a way, that's the complaint that we had, or, or similar to the complaint that we had two weeks ago with Hellblazer number five when Johnny comes marching home. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. That, that was another really good example of an issue that's dark, sure, but that's not really what's wrong with it, or not the only thing wrong with it. Dark is not an excuse for the story to feel like a foregone conclusion. Right. The problem with it is nobody has any agency. Right, right. I would point out this critique of the muse abuse theme. An author can love his characters. He puts them through hell, but detortures his pawns with only contempt in his heart, right? Yeah. He doesn't even treat them as characters because what they feel and who they are are irrelevant to him. Yeah, and he has... He's sort of nihilistic. Yes. Um, he tries to do these things thinking that he'll derive pleasure from them and finds himself deriving very little. Yeah, that's true. 
it's absolutely shown throughout the issue that he doesn't even enjoy the tortures that he puts these people through as much as he expects to. Okay, so shall we move on to Sandman number seven? Yeah. This is Sound and Fury, written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones. We got a Dave McKeon cover. This is a rare case where the shelf, the curio shelf format is violated. We've got sort of a door that looks like a canvas with Morpheus drawn on it, and there is a photograph overlaid on that of a naked man with a detached hand reaching for the knob of the door. Yeah. I'm not sure his hand is detached so much as the part that's showing it being connected to his arm is not drawn. Right, that's what I meant. It's a a photograph of the man and a separate photograph of his hand. Right. And the curio shelves all show other images of hands. So it's Dr. Destiny reaching for the door to the King of Dreams. Right. So we start with Listen, you can hear the screaming. And this is basically a montage of people being affected by the madness that Dr. Destiny has unleashed on the world. People are being driven mad, killing each other. Others are sobbing as more are hurt or killed in accidents. And we have fundamentalists weeping as Armageddon plays out, but without their salvation. Harsh. In the radio room, Nan Fowler knows she has no more ambulances to send, and the calls just won't stop coming in. I wanted to point out that I did like this cityscape image here on page two and the heavy frame on page three. Those both look really cool, and the art is starting to redeem itself a little bit since last issue. All right. Inside that heavy frame, we've got Morpheus. We see him in the background on the first two pages as he walks through the world, and we find him catching up with Dr. Destiny in the all-night diner. What do you think you are doing? So, Dr. Destiny sort of lays out his plan for Morpheus. He's using the ruby to dredge up people's worst selves, to drive them mad or kill them. Dream asks why, and Dee has to think about it for a minute. Revenge, possibly? That and dreams of power? In the beginning, I thought I'd tell them I was doing this, and they'd make me ruler of the world if I stopped. But it's so much fun, I don't want to stop. I think I'll dismember the world, and then I'll dance in the wreckage. Morpheus tells John Dee how he made the stone long ago from the fabric of his own being, how it was powered by his own spirit. That's the original power source that Dee cut it off from when he imposed circuitry on it in the Justice League story. Morpheus asks Dee to stop. This is not the ruby's purpose. If Dee will reverse what he's done to it, Dream can repair the damage that's done to the world, but he can't do it himself now. The ruby contains too much of his power, and when he touched it, it stole what was left. Yeah, and Dee, of course, declines to stop what he's doing, and says, instead, I'm going to kill you. Right. Dream takes this pretty calmly, although he does speculate that he thinks Dee could actually do it with the power in the ruby. He puts on his helmet, and he steps into the world of dreams. Yeah, with his helmet and his cloak on, he actually looks really cool on the bottom half of page six. Yeah, he's wearing his cloak with the full flames right now and with the faces of dreamers inside. So, Dr. Destiny calls him a coward. Cowardy, cowardy custard. Stick your head in the mustard. (laughs) And commands the ruby to uh, send him after so he can give chase. 
we get another montage here of people doing horrible stuff to themselves or each other. Listen, the narration keeps telling us. The title of this issue is Sound and Fury, and this here is the sound. Right. So we're listening to basically the, the madness of the world and the consequences of Dr. Destiny's own particular take on sleepy sickness. Right. And then we find Caesar stepping out of a door into the dreaming. Is that Dr. Destiny as Caesar? It is. The only way we can tell is that he's wearing the ruby on his chest. He looks hale and healthy, and he's, well, dressed as Julius Caesar. He says he had a dream he was raping his mother, and he asks these three women what it means. Oh, these three all look identical, so maybe they're not the Hecate, but maybe they're another reference. Sort of a Hecate reference. Chapter one, what it means. They tell him he will rule the earth as a universal mother. And then they change their minds. It means only that you had that dream. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That is, of course, a quote from Macbeth. Right. And there's also, I think, quotes from Julius Caesar in this scene as well. I mean, Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare play. So there's kind of a Shakespeare thing going on on this page. Yeah. And I guess throughout the whole issue, since Sound and Fury is the title of the issue. Right. I think it's interesting to talk about this idea that the dream means only that you had the dream. In a way, you could take it as a rejection of the idea that the horrors D is pulling forth from dreams are any reflection of the dreamers. That they're not the architects of their own dreams and don't bear responsibility. That D's malice is being inflicted by him, not found within the people that he draws it from. Yeah. Well, I I think that there's two methods of interpreting dreams, right? Right. There's dream interpretation as a form of soothsaying, as in Julius Caesar. And then there's... um, Dreams coming from some external but valid knowledge. Right. There's dream interpretation as a form of psychology. Right. And the soothsayers here are maybe rejecting both. Right. A dream is just a dream. Uh, And we do learn... Later on, we've already seen it sort of implied that dreams come from the dreaming. Yeah, that's true, too. So, at this point, a couple of Morpheuses appear. Yeah, so the three women turn into Morpheuses. And there's a a neat quote here. Beware the Ides of March. No, the March of Ideas. (laughs) Beware the Brides of Frankenstein. (laughs) As all three Morpheuses turn into Brides of Frankenstein. Yeah, they've got the the tall black hair with the white lightning through it. Yeah. D wills away these illusions and finds himself in an empty void. He remembers himself like he came here, and he returns to his hideous skeletal form, although now with the familiar blue cloak of Dr. Destiny. Right, he's in his sort of comic book supervillain form at this point. Yeah, his head goes full skull. He's got some boots and his cloak, and he's looking for Morpheus, delighted at the chance to take over the dream world. And a hundred million sleepers stirred uneasily in their slumber. Yeah, and this part here with the with the skyscape and the and the film strips, it's very experimental looking and, and very interesting. Very almost photo collage. Yeah, sort of punk rock. Yeah. D screams for Dream to show himself while shooting blasts from his ruby, ripping apart the dreaming, and every single person who's dreaming is caught in the nightmare. We see 
Eve in her cave and Cain and Abel in their homes watching this fight spread to the entire dreaming. Yeah, I liked the little cameo of Cain and Abel and Gregory here. Yeah, hiding under the couch or something. And we get a cameo here from a character called Destiny. In the Garden of Forking Ways, Destiny finds himself, perhaps for the first time, hesitant to turn to the next page in his book. I take it that he's one of the Endless? He is. He is also another classic horror host character. He was created by Marv Wolfman and Bernie Wrightson. He first appeared in 1972's Weird Mystery Tales number 1, and he went on to also host Secrets of Haunted House. Sounds like fun. We should read Secrets of Haunted House. That sounds good to you? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Let's get into it. Let's, let's get into some of that. <laughs> what do you got there? Haunted House? What are the secrets? What are the secrets? Can I tell you some secrets? Yeah, I think that he is the only one of the Endless to be a pre-existing character. Oh, okay. He would originally wander his garden with his book and read tales from the book, and that would be the frame story for the horror stories that would appear in, the, in those comics. That sounds kind of cool. If we go all the way through Secrets of Haunted House, mm-hmm. and we find that at one point in it, he actually is afraid to turn the page of his book. Right. Continuity error. <laughs> that would be a continuity error. And it would be well worth our time. And well worth our listeners' time as well. Join us on this journey of the imagination, friends. <laughs> this seems like nitpicking on a grand scale. Exactly. That could be the title of the podcast. Nitpicking on a grand scale? Yeah. <laughs> so Destiny's got this book. It apparently contains basically all the things that have ever happened or will ever happen. He is, in fact... I'm going to spoil this a little bit, but he is actually the oldest of the Endless, because the idea that things were going to happen was the first thing that ever happened. Oh, that's kind of nifty. Yeah. So, anyway. So Morpheus pops up and says, Stop, enough, I am here, D. Desist. D is hurting the dreamers and upsetting the order of things, and Morpheus can't take it. Right. He can't put up with that. Because it's rude. <laughs> it, well... It was specifically because it's against the natural order. Yeah, exactly. Rules and orders and duties are the way that Morpheus thinks. So we turn the page here and we come to the first time in the Sandman comic book, and perhaps the last, of what looks like a superhero fight. Right. We had one conflict before. It was the poetry contest between Morpheus and Karanzen. Yeah. Man, Karanzen was cool looking. <laughs> You still remember that one with fondness? <laughs> yeah, the art in that issue was so good. I miss Sam Keith. <laughs> he drew an issue that we covered earlier in this same episode, and I already miss him. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a source for this, but I do remember reading a, a quote or a paraphrase from Sam Keith saying, essentially, Neil sent Morpheus to hell so that I could draw a bunch of cool monsters. <laughs> well, it was a good plan. So... D asks about the ruby as he's kind of blasting with it. It contains Dream's life, right? And the last time he touched it, it sucked out more of his life, right? He brandishes the ruby, boasting as he sucks out the last of Morpheus's life. He's crushing it in his hands, thinking that it will kill Morpheus if he does. The ruby cracks and then explodes. And we just get... An almost entirely blank page with Dr. Destiny, a tiny figure, alone in a vast, empty white space. 
And I, I think that he's probably about the size of a 16th panel here. Yeah. So, so he's quite small on quite a large field of white. Yeah, and, and it's a full page of white followed by a half page of white with Dr. Destiny set in, followed by a half page of him talking to himself. He thinks he's beaten Dream. He plans to stay in the Dream world. I'll never go back. Never leave here for the real world where people hurt you, where they don't care, where they die when you still need them. <laughs> yeah, he's got some mommy issues. Oh, most definitely. It's maybe the first move toward making Dr. Destiny a little more sympathetic here to sort of imply that he did all of this out of grief or abandonment at his mother's death. At the same time, it's a little late to be revealing his motives. Yeah, again, I just think there's such a disconnect between the way that his character is portrayed in issues five and seven with the way that his character is portrayed in issue six. I mean, I don't know. He's, he's at least mildly sympathetic in the first and last issues of this story arc and completely not at all. Right, nothing but sadism in issue six. Right. He sort of yearns for human connection in this issue and in Passengers when he has a genuine conversation with Rosemary and where in this issue he clearly has some kind of feeling for his mother that he misses her. Whereas in 24 hours, he didn't care about anything that the people in the diner thought or felt at all. Right. So we pull back to find that the vast white expanse that he has been standing in is actually Morpheus's hand. This is a pretty cool panel. This is a full page. Morpheus in black jeans and gray t-shirt with Dr. Destiny in the palm of his hand. Thank you, John D. With the destruction of the ruby, all the power that Dream had put into it is his again. More power than he's had to himself for eons. Yeah, and Dr. Destiny asks, are you going to kill me? Dream considers it. D did violate the natural order, pretend to Dream's powers, and attack him personally. Incidentally, as soon as Morpheus reveals himself, Dee's cloak is gone, and he's the old wretch that we first saw once again. Yeah, he's returned to looking kind of pathetic and naked again. Yeah. So, Morpheus decides that for now at least, he is going to take him home. Home to Arkham Asylum. That is where he lives. Right. In Gotham State. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> in, the state of Gotham. In, Go in the city of Gotham, in the state of Gotham. What they forget is that when you take an insane person to the asylum, you're taking him home. The very place he knows best. What's that? The Joker. Batman Arkham Asylum. Oh, is it the serious house? No, from the video game. Oh, the video game. Okay. Well, all right. Uh... <laughs> I don't... You know, I think... I think I put a lot more hours into Arkham City than Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum I might have only played through once. Well, that's reasonable to do. Just like the movie Clerks. <laughs> they teleport into Arkham, where Scarecrow jumps out yelling, Boo! And he scares the living bejesus out of both of them. Yeah, Morpheus <laughs> pisses himself for the only time in the series. And it's shocking to see. <laughs> yeah, it's... He has to go get it. He has to teleport back to the Dreaming for a minute and get a new cloak. It's rough. Um... <laughs> No, uh, neither of them seem to be particularly affected by this little jump scare. Right, and then Crane apologizes. Oh, mm, sorry. Hang on, I'm afraid I can't see a thing without my spectacles. 
<laughs> and he puts his glasses on. And he tells Dr. Destiny that, basically, I told you so. I right. knew you'd be back. He, yeah, he told him that he'd be coming back. And then he has a quote. It is a comfort in wretchedness to have companions in woe. Marlowe, Faust. Of course, he was talking about hell, but it applies equally to Arkham. Right. D seems to agree. There's no place like home, Professor Crane. D apologizes to Morpheus, who tells him to sleep well. Tonight, for the first time since he was defeated by the Justice League, he will be able to sleep again. Yeah, and it, it looks like Scarecrow also has trouble sleeping, ironically because he's too scared. Right, he can't sleep in his cell because there's a rat in there and he's afraid of rats. Morpheus sort of puts him to bed and says, I have a castle to rebuild, the world to reclaim, but tonight at least, tonight humanity will sleep in peace. Right, and some of the crazy people that we saw in the previous montages are, are now able to rest. Right, everybody is waking up or sleeping peacefully. The only noise is the gentle, even cadence of people asleep. In, out, in, out. Listen, you can hear it. Yeah, and then it says, next, a death in the family. Right. So, are we covering a Batman story next week? Uh, no, um, Eric, you know. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> well, good. So, that's the end of the first major story arc of Sandman. What did you think of that story? Well, I thought that issue number seven was a big step up from issue number six. Okay. The, the writing was a lot better, you know, it wasn't boring, there was, there was actual, like, dynamism and tension to it. And the art was even a little better. Right. It also had a kind of, like, epic quality to it that justifies the fact that they've been sort of hinting at this story since issue number two. Right. We were seeing cuts of Dr. Destiny in Arkham Asylum for, for quite a while before we actually got to this, to the real meat of this story arc. Yeah, and they don't spend a ton of time on it, but there's a real sense of scale as we see the way that sleepers all over the world are being affected by the battle between Dr. Destiny and Morpheus. Yeah, they did a good job with that. Practically the only, well, I won't say the only, but one of the very few fights in the series. And I thought it was well done in that they don't really fight until one of them wins. They don't really resolve the situation through punching. There's a logic to the way it's resolved that breaking the ruby returns all of Morpheus's powers instead of destroying them. Yeah, I think that Neil Gaiman is sort of never going to be the guy to draw a conventional... I say draw, but to write a conventional superhero battle. Right. You know, where it's just the, the heroes fight hard and maybe they come up with some kind of clever tactic that helps them win the day, but basically it's it's a battle that they win. Neil Gaiman always wants to have a, a sort of more clever resolution to things. Yeah, I think that's true. Make it a little bit more of a riddle. He's, he's the Riddler. Right. <laughs> Neil Gaiman is the Riddler. Sort of like American Gods. But that is a spoiler for a currently running television program. <laughs> and comic book. Oh, yeah, you're right. Have you checked out that comic book at all? I haven't read it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's not my vertigo, so I'm powerless right. to read it. I also thought there was a neat sort of meta element to the the lampshade thrown over the fact that, of course, villains always go back to Arkham Asylum. Yeah, that was cute. I do think that Dr. Destiny deserved a lot more punishment. 
Right. And that's something that I think we will probably see again with Morpheus, that he's not all that interested in defeating and punishing his enemies. We did see, I mean, he does have a vengeful streak, as we saw in issue number one. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't even give him the eternal waking. Like he gave, what's his face, McJackass. Well, he was put out for a much shorter time by Dr. Destiny. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's true. And he doesn't care about the damage to anybody but himself, so. Right, he has to set things right because that's the way that things should be. He mentions repairing the damage to the world, but he obviously doesn't bring back the people in the diner, at least. Yeah, well, he's, he's, restored, he's restored the natural order of things. Right. Yeah, so I, I think that we, the reader, kind of deserve a little bit more relief from the, from the bleakness of, of issue 16 that we don't exactly get. But generally speaking, this issue does a pretty good job of wrapping up the story arc and, and all, the, all the foreshadowing that we got of this major conflict. Right. It's the story of... Morpheus's tools is resolved now. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. All right. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, I'm going to have him read Sweet Tooth, written and drawn by Jeff Lemire. This is not a Twisted Metal thing. No, no, it's it's not about the ice cream truck clown from Twisted Metal. Okay, all right, all right. I forgot shot. that that was the name of that guy. Okay, okay, so Sean just read Sweet Tooth number one out of the Deep Woods part one, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Jeff Lemire. So that was a strange thing. Okay, so there's this boy who has a deer's horns, He's being raised by an old man who believes in God. Apparently there was an accident that resulted in a lot of mutant children. And, and our, our boy Gus believes that everything outside the forest is hell. And he can never go there. And, and it's sort of implied that maybe there's not much left outside of their forest, outside of the Nebraska Wilderness Preserve that they live in. Certainly the signs at the edge of the preserve are decayed falling apart. There are also human hunters who are looking for him, looking for all the hybrid kids, and one of them apparently sort of throws him some chocolate in an attempt to get close to him. His dad warns him against that. Right, it looks like they've been leaving candy bars around in order to try and lure out their prey, or right. at least like they can come back and if the candy bar has been taken then they know something. Right, and they're wrapped candy bars, so they're not something that would appeal to animals. They're specifically something that would appeal to children. Yeah. Now, you said he believes that everything outside the, outside the fences is hell. I would clarify that it looks like his father believes that. Or his father told him to believe that, specifically, so, we that don't, so that he wouldn't go far. Right, we don't know if Gus actually believes it. He says, you know, that he's looked and he doesn't see any flames. Yeah, and, and we get this moment where he's... We see that he's training somewhat to fight. He's got a human dummy that he shoots rocks from his slingshot at. And that leads to a moment of just painful innocence later on, where he encounters two hunters with guns and literally shoots a rock from a slingshot at them. Yeah, you know, I think painful innocence is a good way of describing Jeff Lemire's writing style in general. <laughs> 
But, but yeah, I mean, so there's, again, I don't want to, as I always say with this segment, I don't want to get too deep into my thoughts on the issue. This is more about your thoughts on the issue. But I think we get some solid world building here and also a good introduction to the character of Gus. Right. I'm, I'm not sure that I would call it solid world building. This is maybe a bit harsh, but I do think that maybe there's so little there. I mean, okay. So at the end of the issue, he has been found by this hunter fellow and saw the cover for issue number two. He's apparently going to travel with that guy. It's the two of them walking side by side. Yeah, we, Sean was reading this out of the Sweet Tooth Volume 1 trade paperback. So you finish issue number one and you see the cover for issue two. Yeah, so it's very unclear whether the hunters are after them to kill them or because they have some use. I, I'm not sure, but we did have one guy kill another guy because it looked like he was about to kill Gus or he didn't know what he was doing. Right. Well, there's definitely an outside world and a society that Gus knows nothing about. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat curious where they're going to go and what they're going to see next, but this literally could be happening in the woods right now or it could be the post-apocalyptic future. That's, I mean, that's the thing about the deep woods. You don't know anything about what's around them. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. We do have a hint just in the fact that, like, Gus himself is mutated and the hunters talk about other mutated kids, that something happened. It's not as if Gus's father made right, it all. Right, yes. Some kind, of, some kind of accident. And it's not entirely clear to me when the hunters were arguing about what to do with him, whether they... They hadn't found him at this point, so it wasn't clear to me whether they knew he was a hybrid or whether they thought that he was a human child and they were looking for those to, to take them and protect them in some way. I don't know. Yeah, still a lot unclear... Much like we said about the first issue of Savage Things, you know, this first issue doesn't really do enough to introduce us to the story. Right. Sweet Tooth seems a strange title. Obviously, he ate a chocolate bar, and he will probably look forward to eating some more. <laughs> yeah, we can count on that. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you could call it Dear Boy. That's less creative. <laughs> <laughs> the art is good, but also ugly. All the characters that we have met are ugly. And there's a lot of Dutch angles, too. Well, I think that... I mean, I didn't think that the art was... I wouldn't have described it as good but ugly. I would have described it as passable but rough. I uh -huh. mean, Jeff Lemire is primarily a writer. Okay. This is a like a self-created comic book where he did the art, too. But generally speaking, in his career, he's paired with an artist. Okay. Yeah, I didn't find it inadequate. I didn't find the obvious flaws in the technique. But it did strike me as remarkably and deliberately ugly. The so, main character certainly has a striking design, what we might have called ugly cute. <laughs> ugly cute. Yeah, well, I think that at least Gus is a compelling character. And I'm looking forward to reading some more Sweet Tooth. Do you think you would read more of it or no? I don't think that it's really my thing based on what I've seen here. And it reminds me a lot of the movie The Village. Did you ever see that movie? Uh, I never did. Okay, well, the last... Something between the last act and the last half of the movie is Bryce Dallas Howard's character walking through the woods alone, and she's blind. 
and I don't mean any offense to blind people who like to walk through the woods, but it felt unbelievably manipulative, just unbearably painful to watch her be so helpless and so alone. And that is kind of what I felt about this comic book, too. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, he's not taking it easy on you. Right, yeah. He, he, he knows how to hit emotional buttons, and he, he does it sort of shamelessly. Yeah, and I'm not disparaging the craft that he was involved in creating that. Okay, well, that was Sweet Tooth number one. The rest of this episode, we covered Sandman issues five through seven. Next week, join us for Hellblazer issues six and seven. As the devil goes after John Constantine with extreme prejudice. Thanks for listening. If you like our show, please go to birdeguys.bluebury.com, B-O-U-B-R-R-Y. We have plenty more episodes and show notes. Show notes on every episode. Uh, you can also shoot us an email at vertiguys at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.